everybody says they're burnt out, right? So there's sort of this low level. We've almost adopted this cultural perspective that if you're not exhausted, if you're not overwhelmed, if you're not burnt out, if you're not burning the candle at both ends, I mean, just keep clicking through the cliches. It's somehow like you just went around and advertised, I'm not important. My career doesn't matter. I'm insignificant. Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. When tonight's guest got engaged, his wife gave him a rather unusual gift. She gave him a paid trip to Deep Creek to be alone for two nights, including away from her. Many other friends thought this was strange given the fact that they just got engaged. John McGowan is the lead pastor of Restoration City Church in Arlington. He joins us to talk about spiritual practices like solitude and silence and a weekly day of rest and how they can go a long way towards addressing the chronic stress and burnout that characterizes life in the D.C. metro area. John, welcome to Grace in 30. Hey, it's good to be here. Let's just start off talking about people's reactions to what your wife did, her engagement gift. Yeah, they're probably similar to my reaction when you started with that story of thinking, oh my goodness, of all the ways to start this conversation, not the one that sounds so crazy. Um, yeah, everybody thought that it was some sort of sign that um, either our relationship was in a lot of trouble or that she was engaged to a total uh, freak. So how did friends react? What did, did they say anything to you or were they kind of afraid to say anything? Well, I feel like it's actually one of those things that most people's reaction is sort of uh, a sense of, uh-oh, something's wrong um, and we don't want to press and let's not pry. And if anything, people probably assumed, oh, is John having second thoughts or is Laura having second thoughts, which which would, would have been far more likely and would have made more sense um, that she would be the one with reservations, not me, of kind of like you're engaged. By the way, it was right before Christmas. Uh, so it was kind of a combination engagement, Christmas present, and then all of a sudden I'm off by myself in the mountains for two days. And that sort of suggests, uh-oh, somebody's rethinking something here. And you got her a sweater, right? I don't, you know what? I got her mugs, and I those mugs are still floating around in our kitchen to this day, and I can't get rid of them. So let's talk. The reason I bring that up first is, you know, we've got a crisis of burnout in, in, our, in our culture and especially in places like Washington, D.C. Um, you're seeing this, I'm sure, in your congregation. You yourself have start, started practicing things like solitude and, and taking a day of rest, things that are very counter to our culture these days. Talk about what you've learned. You did a sermon series on this back in, in March and April, talked about the crisis that we're experiencing in burnout and what you're seeing and, and just talk about what you've learned about practices like solitude, getting away for a couple of days and how that it was actually really good for your relationship. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I'm learning is that all of these practices are incredibly countercultural. They are also incredibly necessary to stay healthy, right? I mean, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, I would also argue that they are incredibly necessary to stay in love with God, to be a passionate follower of God in the world. But even if you're not at that point yet, I would say there are some things in these practices that are historic Christian practices that are absolutely necessary, uh, really just for surviving life in D.C., so I was reading a Washington Post article that you referred to in the uh, sermon, 
said that 95% of human resource leaders say that burnout is sabotaging workplace retention, 95%. And they talked about doctor burnout being a public health crisis. What are you seeing in your congregation? I think there's, there's sort of two things. Everybody says they're burnt out, right? So there's sort of this low level. We've almost adopted this cultural perspective that if you're not exhausted, if you're not overwhelmed, if you're not burnt out, if you're not burning the candle at both ends, I mean, just keep clicking through the cliches. It's somehow like you just went around and advertised, I'm not important. My career doesn't matter. I'm insignificant. So... It almost seems like we have this this need, and I don't think it's a need to fake it. I think it's a need to live our lives in such a way where the vast majority of us are uh, flirting with burnout, are near burnout, are on a collision course to burnout, or maybe, best case scenario, you're a super energetic uh, 20-something, you know, and or super energetic 30-something, and you seem like you're getting away with it for right now, and you kind of feel like, man, I'm young enough, I'm strong enough, I'm cheating the system, I'm going to be the exception to it. So there's sort of this level of burnout or proximity to burnout that I think is uh, really endemic to life in D.C. I was also, though, astonished with the number of people in our congregation that either approached me in person or sent me emails and said, man, I am a lot closer to actual, legit, I'm going to be taking a break from work, I'm going to be moving, I need to make massive changes to my life in order to be healthy for a while. Yeah, you mentioned that people, they know they're operating in an unhealthy way, but they seem to believe that they're the, going to be the one that, that beats it just in time. They'll turn back the throttle right before they have a breakdown and right after they've built up enough money and enough stuff. I mean, do you see that happening? And does anyone ever really hit that mark? No, because I, I mean, I think that's the game we're playing of, of sort of we, we see um, not just rest, but we see sustainability as a, a byproduct of a certain level of financial or professional success. So most people will say, oh, I absolutely want that. I want to live that kind of life. And the language we'll use is I need to pay the price now so that I can live that way in the future, the, the idea being somehow I am going to push myself right up to the edge, but still maintain just enough self-awareness to pull myself back from a major life-altering crisis, and somehow I'll be able to walk that line, get close, but in that getting close, I'm going to find the professional success that I need. In that getting close, I'm going to find the financial freedom I need. And then somehow, magically, a day is going to come, and it's all going to change, and I'm going to start getting the sleep I need. And right, and, and in the D.C. area, we sort of romanticize this, and yes, I'm going to move out to the mountains, or I'm going to move near the ocean. Open a winery. Yeah, I mean, which sounds delightful to me. Um, but we have this idea of there's sort of this um, fictional thing that's coming. And, and of course, number one, none of us ever time that perfectly. Uh, number two, anytime you're trying to live close to the edge, it's a recipe for, oh, and here comes an unexpected crisis and the hot water tank bursts in your basement or whatever. And oh, that was the thing that pushed you over the edge. But number three, it's making your life absolutely miserable for this moment 
in time. And I just, again, as a follower of Jesus, I don't think that is how Jesus has called us or designed us to live. And that's not how he rolled. I mean, he, he always made time for people. He never was rushing around and trying to get things done. You know, it's interesting. He did. He always makes time, but he also was really good at setting boundaries, right? There's this wonderful story in Mark chapter 1 where it says he gets up early in the morning and he goes out of the village to pray. So he's off by himself, a little bit of silence, a little bit of solitude, a little bit of spiritual practice, and his disciples come and find him. And they're kind of like, hey, where are you? The whole village is looking for you to come preach. And Jesus, rather than responding to the demand of the crowd to get in there and give a sermon, which is sort of every preacher's dream that, hey, there's a bunch of people there just waiting for you to show up and preach, he says, no, we're going to go down the road to this other town that they don't even know I'm coming. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was this wonderful combination of he wanted to be available to people. He wanted to be accessible to people. He also wanted to be faithful to his father's will. And he was willing to set and establish boundaries and say, yep, I get what they want me to do. I'm not going to go do that. And that is a shocking insight into the person of Jesus, because most of us think that to be a quote-unquote good Christian means you just have to be a doormat for everybody. And, oh, well, okay, if you ask, so I need to do it, uh, I'm going to be there. There is actually a permission in the gospel um, to, to say no, and it's probably one of the most helpful words we can learn. So you said on the phone when we spoke, you spend a lot of your time just trying to get people to slow down now. Yeah. And, and I think part of it, you just see the correlation between this run, run, run and burnout. But you've also learned some key lessons, you know, about we talk about the Sabbath, taking a day every week off. Let's talk specifically about that, you know, this the sermon series you did and specifically about what you've learned personally about observing a day like that, just unplugging and what that's done for you and your family. Yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about silence, solitude, Sabbath for sure. Um, currently, my wife Laura and I practice that on Mondays. Sunday's kind of a big day for us. Life is aimed at Sunday. We've done different days in different seasons. We handle Sabbath a little bit differently over the summer when the kids are not in school. But we take a 24-hour period where we shut down. So we, we actually kind of the um, Hebrew Bible Old Testament custom was Sabbath would go from sundown to sundown. So our version of that is sundown-ish on Sunday to sundown-ish on Monday. Yep. And my phone is off. My phone is on airplane mode. Uh, my computer is off. My computer is in my bag in a closet. Um, we, we actually, it's the reason we have a landline in our house. There's two or three people that have that number of being able to say, all right, if you need to get me on a Monday, that's the only way it's going to happen. Um, so I'm pretty much unreachable. I don't check email. I don't post on Instagram. I don't do any of that. And it is a day uh, just to have fun. It's a day to rest and enjoy and to take a nap if you want to and go hiking in Great Falls and have coffee with my wife and play with the kids and, and, and whatever else happens. So it's not, oh, I've got to unplug. There's no way I can do this. It's, it, the scripture says, enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight. Yeah, there's this wonderful, wonderful custom um, that Jewish families would would practice back in biblical times, and, and probably some still do today, that on the morning of the Sabbath, the father of the family would get up early in the morning, and he would prepare a, a spoon of honey 
for each one of his children. And he would start the day as they woke up by giving them that spoonful of honey that they would never forget the sweetness of the rest of God. Like that is the idea of the Sabbath. It's not. we Over church history, that got turned into this legalistic, right? We think about blue laws and stores have to be closed and you can't do this. And somehow God is pleased if you're sitting around your living room doing absolutely nothing, which is just sort of this insane picture of God. It's not it. Jesus said, you know, the, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift. It's 24 hours to sit back and be reminded that God is running the world. You're not. Um, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to produce anything to make God love you or to have value or worth or significance in this world. You just get to enjoy it. Let's dive into another, uh, I guess there are practices that people do like Bible study and prayer that are active, and then there mm -hmm. are things that are inactive, like the Sabbath. There's also a practice of abstinence, which I'm a humongous fan of, which is fasting. Um, let's spend a, a couple minutes talking about that, because fasting was assumed by Jesus. He said at one point, when you fast, you know, do the following so you don't look like you're fasting. And he talked about the bridegroom himself, when he goes away, then they will fast. What have you learned about that? And, and if you're, you're practicing this yourself. What, what are your folks in your congregation doing? A lot of times we think about fasting as sort of an antiquated form of legalism. Because, again, it, it, it has this idea when you first say it, most people understand fasting incorrectly. The, the assumption that most people have is, wait a minute, you're telling me that if I don't eat food, God is going to like me more. And that just seems ludicrous, right? I mean, Laura and I have um, three kids, and it's sort of this like, you know, if my little cute almost three-year-old daughter came and said, Daddy, I love you so much, I'm not going to eat any food on Thursday. I would be like, who gave you this deranged idea of me? And, you know, Emma, I love you so much, why don't I take you out to breakfast? Why don't I take you out to lunch? Why don't I take you out to dinner? It is not a way of pleasing God. It is not a way of punishing ourselves because that's the other misconception of, hey, I've been a bad boy and I know how to get back into God's good graces. If I just make myself really hungry, that's going to please God. It's like, well, well, no, wait, Jesus died on the wood of the cross to pay the price for all of our sins. That's what makes us acceptable to God, not, oh, I skip lunch every Wednesday. So you, we kind of need to punt both of those ideas out of our minds if fasting is going to make any sense. What we have to get kind of front and center in our mind is we are um, an inherently spiritual, emotional being, but we are placed very intentionally inside a physical body. And there is way more of a connection between our spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical um, aspects of our humanity. Um, and fasting is really uh, one of the ways that we give physical expression to some of the spiritual and emotional things that are happening inside of us or some of the spiritual and emotional things that we want to see happen inside of us. It's interesting. I'm a, I'm a fan of, I read a book by John Piper called A Hunger for God. Have, have you, are you familiar yeah. with that? And he says that, you know, basically fasting is a way of saying, this much God, I desire you. Because he says it's not 
porn or these negative things that keep you from the banquet. And that parable Jesus told, it was a new plot of land, which could be a new Lexus or, or, or a finished basement, a new wife. These good things kept people from, from a relationship with God. And he's sort of saying when you fast, you're, you're periodically saying, I, I desire you this much that I'm going to deny myself a little while this good thing and, and make that statement. Do you agree with that or do you, do you see merit in that thought? I think as long as you are intentionally able to connect those dots, because again, if you, you could take what Piper is saying and turn that into, okay, so I'm just really, really hungry to prove that I really, really like you. And we're back to the question with my daughter. But if we said, wait a minute, here, here's the question. How do you make your soul want God more? I mean, th- that, that, that is one of those things that seems really impossible to do. But what if we said, wait a minute, no, there is a connection between your physical body and your soul. What if I'm going to use my body to shape my soul? So as an exercise in stimulating my own hunger and thirst for God, I am going to voluntarily abstain from food for a a period of time so that As I experience those physical sensations of hunger, I am in my mind going to take that as a prompt to say, and God, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God or kind of whatever makes sense for you to be meditating on in that moment and say, God, I am doing this. I am choosing hunger in this moment because this is how I want to feel about you. It's interesting. I think I may have mentioned to you that um, I was involved in a very legalistic church years ago, and, and we fasted on the Day of Atonement. We, we observed the Sabbath from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, the, the Jewish way, the original way. And, and we fasted periodically, but not often. And it was a, it was a burden. It was, it was legalistic. And I stopped doing it for years. And when my dad was dying, it was clear he was really declining. And my daughter was preparing to go to Brooklyn for college. And that was a big deal. I, I just felt drawn to do it more. And I actually prayed about it. And I said, how do you want Ed Melick to do this? How does it look for me? Because it looks different for different people. And some people, it's not food. It's giving up something else periodically. And the amazing thing about it, God has built in incredible physical blessings. I, I used to get four or five colds a year, every year without exception. I stopped getting sick. And it, it, I was doing it every three days, just not eating until dinner. And I would pray and read more on those days because you don't have to get food and prepare food and eat food and clean up from the food. Some people have said to me, oh, I don't have the time for that. And I'm like, that's kind of funny. <laughs> and and you know, things like autophagy and stem cell production, all these things are built into this. And I find it fascinating that God builds these blessings, these physical blessings into this, this act. It, it really, I mean, most of the studies that are out there say that there are associated physical and health um, benefits to that. I, I feel like, you know, there's always that little bit of caution of, hey, um, you know, I, I'm not a doctor. I, I try to stay really far away from things that I don't know about. Um, but I also think there's a sense in me of like, isn't it funny when we do the things that God asks us to do, there are associated blessings. What I try to be really disciplined with, though, is, hey, fasting is not a great spiritualizing of some other goals. Like, if, if, if the goal is, you know what, I've been looking for a way to shave off a few pounds, and I, my guess is, let me get serious about fasting, because that's probably going to help me towards that. And as a 
byproduct, obviously, somehow I'm going to end up hungering and thirsting for God more. Eh, that sounds good, too. Uh, I think it's always this question of why are you choosing to do this? And there are times as a congregation where we will fast at the same time. We did that this spring kind of leading up to Easter, and there there's a wonderful thing to that. But in general, I think these practices are best followed when it's something that somebody's voluntarily participating in, not a, all right, we all need to do this right now. And if it's voluntary, it means you really have chosen to do it, which means if you chose to do it, I'm assuming you and God know what that particular fast is about in your life, right? Yep. And and if the answer is, ah, I just decided to do it because some guy on the radio was talking about it, I would say, no, no, put more thought into it than that. Um, what do you want to get out of this experience? Yeah, I, I first started it for spiritual reasons. And, and of course, admittedly, you, you see the health benefits and you start to drift. We all, we're always falling off the rails. <laughs> so we always have to keep ourselves aligned. I want to do this. We've got about five minutes. I want to make sure I talk about my favorite topic, which is grace. And when we spoke on the phone, you said there were a couple things that were, were on your mind recently relating to grace. One is, you know, that some people feel it's ungracious to maintain boundaries. Talk about them and share them with us, you know, sort of things you're seeing, challenges you're seeing with people and how they view grace, their understanding of grace. Yeah, it's funny that, you, you know, you chose to highlight the grace doesn't mean you can't establish boundaries. And earlier in the conversation, we're talking about Mark 1 and Jesus saying, no, I know what you want, but I need to, to go over here. I want to be a voice that says that maintaining those kind of boundaries is incredibly appropriate and is entirely consistent with the idea of grace. Because I think sometimes, again, grace is one of those words we'll toss around, but nobody really knows what it means, that we usually just dumb it down to, oh, a really nice guy. Um, and we have this cultural view that a really nice guy never says no. And if you are going to practice any level of silence and solitude and Sabbath, even if you're going to just not check your email from 5 p.m. on Friday until 2 p.m. on Saturday, if you're going to put your phone on airplane mode and just not dial into the office, that is a form of saying no. That is a form of boundary. And our culture pushes back against that. So I think a lot of what I'm trying to do is say you have um, – not only freedom in Christ to establish those boundaries, but almost an obligation and blessing from God to establish those boundaries. And what about grace and effort, the relationship between those two? Yeah, again, another misconception in the church. I think sometimes we feel like, wait a minute, I, I could even hear somebody getting nervous about this entire conversation of saying, wait a minute, there's this guy saying fasting is going to increase my love for God. Um, practicing Sabbath is going to increase my love for God. Silence is going to increase my love for God. That all sounds a lot like human effort. That all sounds a lot like religion. That all sounds a lot like a checklist. That's not grace at all. No, it is a response to grace. Go read Philippians um, chapter 2, uh, verse 12 and 13, end of verse 12, beginning of verse 13, um, says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Ooh, that sounds a lot like we're supposed to do some stuff. Oh, but hang on, for it is God who is at work in you. Um, so 
ultimately, God is the one who gives us the grace to pursue all of these different spiritual disciplines, but grace doesn't mean we just sit back and passively wait for God to somehow zap us and transform us into this different being. Everything we do is sustained by grace. Everything we do is carried along by this river of God's grace, yet that river leads us to do specific things. Yeah, I mentioned I had Mike Minter on the program from Rest and Bible, and, he, and I asked him to define grace, and he said it was this divine or supernatural power that enables you to live an impossible life, a, God, a Christian life. And that's what you're talking about. We're empowered to do these things that are beneficial for us. And then improve our relationship with God and, and just the quality of our life. So one of the ways I hold that together in my mind is that grace does not exempt us from effort. Grace empowers effort. So, it, it, you know, it, it says that at the end of the day, it is God's grace that enables us to do everything we do, even the things uh, that help us pursue him. It's all grace, but that grace will lead to effort. So 30, 45 seconds, anything huge you'd like to share with listeners? Anything on your heart? I, I just think it's the personal invitation to ask questions of what it looks like to cultivate these rhythms that enable you to slow down, right? I mean, we live in a city, we live in a time where people being able to treat each other with kindness and with respect is an incredibly rare commodity. And one of the reasons it's rare is we're all so exhausted. It is hard to be kind. It is hard to be compassionate. It is hard to be empathetic. It is hard to be gracious if you are just running flat out all the time. And and there's an invitation in Jesus. He's Jesus is the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And that's beautiful. I love that. Thank you for joining us. And uh, if people want to see what you guys are doing at Restoration, they can go to restorationcity.church. Is that correct? A recording of this program can be found at thegraceand30.com and wera.fm websites, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. This is Ed and John signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP, Arlington, 96.7 FM. Have a great night, and be sure to tune into Grace.